Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. Glamour is one of the main concerns of this podcast, and also my life in general. And there's very little that produces glamour quite so well as performance. As we all know by now, trans people have always been involved in performance. Even cross-culturally, the role of gender-variant people in many cultures is tied in as closely to performance as it is to mysticism, and in some places, these are one and the same. In North America and Europe during the 20th century, this performance tended to be around female impersonation, what later became the drag culture as we know it today. And just as an aside, if you'd like to hear me talk a little bit more about the history of trans drag culture, check out the BBC's new podcast, NB, available for free on BBC Sounds. But while we normally think of drag as taking place within a strictly LGBT context, this is not the case for many performers in mid-century America. On this week's episode, we're going to take a look at the glamorous life of one of the biggest stars to transition between the world of female impersonation into the glitzier burlesque world. So sit back and listen as OFTV tells the story of Alexandra, the Great 48. This is a song about a bad girl. Something that happened to me a long time ago. Everybody was telling me how the little girl was running around. But I had a head of my own. But I just wouldn't listen to nobody. My father, he told me, my mother sat down and cried. So son, this woman will break your heart. And then she'll put you down. Our first problem is what name do we use? This is a common problem I encounter creating this show, as often trans people may have used multiple names during their lifetimes. Add in stage personas and it becomes a whole new ballgame. For the sake of simplicity, I'll use her most well-known stage name throughout this episode, Alexandra. As a child, Alexandra was greatly inspired by the nightclubs her mother would go to. In an interview with the Las Vegas Showgirl Museum, Alexandra says, uh, Probably from going to the shows my mom uh, worked at. Music and entertainment. I wanted to do something. I really wanted to sing, but I have no voice. Uh, and then I went to a burlesque show, and I traded my voice for my body. <laughs> and grand, it was the Grand Theater in uh, St. Louis. And when I was growing up, there really wasn't a lot to do. Uh, there weren't all the events that we have today. Uh, so 
the grand was like the really big thing and somebody took me there I was underage and I happened to see guess who April March I saw Rose LaRose and that's when I decided what I wanted to do and I had no idea how I was going to do it but I, I did leave home I left St. Louis early and I went to California and um, I'm sorry, I went to, I went to uh, New York. Born in 1940, Alexandra's parents supposedly died when she was young in a brutal car accident. Then she supposedly moved in with an aunt, but this didn't last long and soon Alexandra had moved in with other relatives in New York. However, this may not be true. Her obituary lists both parents as still being alive today in 2019. What we do know is that she was pretty. This much, everyone agrees on. She was damn pretty, and at 16, managed to finagle a job in the chorus line of the famous Jewel Box Review under the name Gail Sherman. You can hear more about the Jewel Box Review in my earlier episode on Stormy Delavier. By the early 1960s, she was living in Chicago and making a big name for herself in the female impersonation scene. Prior to the 1960s, female impersonators sang as part of their acts, but after 1960, a big change occurred. The advent of lip syncing. Why did all these queens make the switch so suddenly? This is a change that actually happened across nightlife in this period. The increasing popularity of television in the late 50s and early 60s radically changed the culture. Whereas in the post-war period, an average adult who could afford it would be out three or four nights a week to be entertained, they now suddenly only go out on Fridays or Saturdays or special occasions. People saved money by staying in to watch late night talk shows and comedy programs. The sudden loss of income for clubs resulted in those clubs cutting their live bands first moving from big bands to smaller bands, then finally doing away with bands altogether. These were replaced with record players and DJs. This move allowed drag culture to flourish. What was once only open to those lucky few who could carry a tune suddenly was open to anyone with a pretty face. And Alexandra, as Gail Sherman, was one of the prettiest faces around. Leaning into her resemblance to movie star Sophia Loren, she became the central star of the female impersonation bar, The Nightlife. According to Suki Delacroix's book, Chicago Whispers, a history of LGBT Chicago before Stonewall, The Nightlife was the, quote, longest running drag bar in Chicago history. It opened in 1940 and ran until 1981, closing only briefly in 1973 after fire damaged the building. It was the subject of frequent raids, including the arrests of eight people in 1964 after a female impersonator supposedly solicited an undercover detective. Taken under the wing of drag mother Tony Midnight, himself one of the most famous female impersonators of the mid-20th century, Alexandra rose to stardom, performing exotic dancing within her nightly shows. One of her most infamous acts, which today's eyes reads very problematic, had her dressed as a witch doctor 
roasting a baby over a fire to an Ema Sumac song to the shocked amusement of the white audience. In 1963, two different tabloids ran stories on her. The National Insider ran the headline, I want to be a woman, and the nightlife, not to be confused with the name of the club she performed in, whose cover splashed beauty in motion above photos of her face. One of these articles was expanded into a mostly ghost-written autobiography titled, I want to be a woman, the true autobiography of Gail Sherman, published by Novel Books in 1964. According to Zagria, the book pairs her short 38-page story with another story about a British trans man and a final chapter supposedly by an expert in the field of gender identity, but which was actually written by pulp writer Carlson Wade. She knew she wanted a sex change, something which had been known as a possibility for the past decade since Christine Jorgensen had made worldwide headlines after her operations in 1952. And so she saved money from her shows towards this, along with presumably any money the book may have gotten her. But she still lived lavishly at this time. According to Chicago Whispers, one of her fellow performers, Vicky St. John, had this to say about her apartment. Quote, Gail had a bedroom that looked like a whorehouse. The carpet was fire engine red. She had red velvet drapes on all the walls. In the middle of the room was a crystal chandelier hanging over a king-size bed with a red velvet bedspread and red and white velvet toss pillows. Then on the floor, at the foot of the bed, were more pillows and a little white teddy bear. She eventually moved over to the Blue Dahlia Club, a straight burlesque club, where she was billed as a female impersonator. According to Vicky St. John, quote, Gail Sherman was stunning. She used to charge $100 just to go on a date. The Blue Dahlia was a straight club, and they got a lot of guys in there from out of town, and if they needed a sharp woman to go on a date with them for a business dinner, they would hire Gail. She would charge $100, and it was nothing more than you take me for dinner. Well, she couldn't have a bank account, and she went to Marshall Fields, and she bought all the furniture to refurnish the apartment. So the cashier said to her, will this be cash or charge? Gail said, this is going to be cash, honey. She pulled out a roll of bills that could choke a horse, and they were all hundreds. She took the rubber band off and started peeling off $2,400. Though she dated male clients for money, Unlike most female impersonators at the time, Alexandra was mostly into dating women in her off time. 
Vicky St. John claims further that the hormone shots Alexandra was taking in the early 1960s had left her feeling worn down. Whereas most strippers performed to three songs at a time, Alexandra could only do one before she was exhausted. She went to see a doctor who, Vicky claims, told her she only had six months left to get a sex change. This does not make sense medically, but is exactly the sort of rumor that was typical of the period. We can see this again in terms of the rumors attributing Candy Darling's lymphoma death to her hormone shots in the early 1970s. Regardless, at some point Alexandra had saved up enough money to have surgery. She went away and had a sex change operation, presumably a vaginoplasty, along with a huge pair of breast implants. The resulting bust line measured 48 inches. When she returned, she was no longer able to work as a female impersonator. Clubs in the 1960s wouldn't allow post-op women to continue working in them. It's here that Alexandra made the switch to burlesque. She changed her name. Here's how she explained the name change. I started out as Brandy Alexander, but uh, apparently there was someone else in New York using that, and I had to ditch that name because the union was very strict at the time. And when I met Rose, uh, they tried to think of a name, and at the time, uh, Alexander the Great 48, or Alexander the Great, um, the movie, was playing. So she was in the office with somebody who worked for her, Tom, and somebody else, I don't remember who, and they started going through names. Alexandria, too many syllables, Al this, Al that, no, they'll call you Al, Alex. Finally, she decided on Alexandra, had just enough syllables, but they couldn't figure out what the, the end of the uh, name would be, so they measured me, and that's how I got to be Alexandra the Great 48. You know, I was the happiest person I've ever known in burlesque. <laughs> I had years working as a showgirl. I loved the nightlife. I loved the life, and I had been around the life growing up. So the lights, the music, it, it was as if I was meant to do that. Uh, so when I did it, uh, I was just eager to keep doing more. Uh, I don't remember ever having a bad event. Interestingly, later in life, Alexandra would revise her personal history, more or less removing the drag bars and replacing them entirely with straight burlesque venues even switching out her early drag mother, Tony Midnight, for burlesque queen, Rose La Rose, as you can hear in that clip. By 1965, Alexandra was a well-known burlesque performer, her transsexual history likely not common knowledge. Photos of her from this period are stunning, but burlesque itself was in decline. Now, she performed not in fancy nightclubs, but in porn theaters between movies. She started at the Town Theater in Chicago, which was located at Armitage and Clark Streets. She also appeared in the Fanny Hill Festival in September 1966, but the following year, Mayor Daley pulled the licenses of all Strand art theaters in Chicago, removing some of the last performance spaces Alexandra had in the city. Alexandra managed to find work in Hawaii. During her time as a dancer, Alexandra became lifelong friends with cis burlesque star April March. 
not to be confused with the 90s singer behind the song Chick Habit. March was billed as the first lady of burlesque because of her resemblance to Jackie Kennedy. Though Alexandra was very positive throughout her life about her work as a burlesque dancer, it wasn't all roses. Here, she recounts an experience of men pulling her down off the stage. It was um, a Friday night, and it was amateur night. And I was really uh, very annoyed because this one girl, they just wouldn't stop clapping for her. And they were all on stage taking a bow, but after they finished, I was supposed to come out for mine. And uh, they just wouldn't stop. And I heard Rose call back backstage, and she said, tell Alexandra not to go out. So Ego got the best of me, and I told them to turn the spot on. And I had a white uh, robe, transparent robe with a white hood, and I took everything off, and I walked on stage, turned the spot on, and I could hear Rose running down the aisle saying, you stupid bitch, don't do it. And I stood there for a second, and there was just dead silence because I didn't have anything on. And then I heard her come backstage, and she said, don't walk the runway, and I did. It's like she, her saying it, motivated me to walk the runway. And they just went crazy and they grabbed my robe and they were really being very respectful, but they pulled me off stage. And as they pulled me off, they automatically lifted me back up like a statue. It was, I thought she would never get over that. I heard that forever. Uh, frightening, scary, exciting, all in one. But that was probably my biggest disaster, I think, falling off stage. Towards the end of the 1960s, Alexandra again appeared in the tabloids, this time in Confidential Magazine. In the article, she did a poll asking her fans whether she should have her 48-inch bust line reduced, though this was likely just a gag for the magazine. At some point in the late 1970s or early 1980s, Alexandra was scheduled to fly to Japan to dance. During a stopover in Oklahoma, she performed at a club there. While performing, all of her luggage was stolen from her hotel room, save for a few pieces she'd left at the club, stranding her in Oklahoma as she tried to earn enough money to fill her wardrobe again. After all, what is a peeler if she has nothing left to peel? She never made it to Japan, ultimately. While working at the club, she recalls this dramatic story. And, uh... I never got to Japan. <laughs> I never really went. And I'm glad, now in, in retrospect, I didn't, but everybody said, well, why are you staying? When are you leaving? Uh, I hope they meant that in a nice way. <laughs> but they thought I should be doing something else. It was a nice club. Uh, not what I was used to, because by that time, the business had changed a little. But I always said, I'll be here until the place blows up. And then it did. Oh, my goodness. I was sitting at the bar one night, eating nachos, and someone threw a bomb in. And that was the last night I worked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes, i never forget that. This was a turning point in Alexandra's life, spelling the end of the Great 48. I mean, you never know how it's going to end. But by that time, uh, the glamour had gone away. Uh, 
you weren't reaching the same audience. Uh, other things were coming up. Uh, it just uh, it lost its luster. And while I was so young, I wanted to do something else with my life. So once it blew up, I decided I'll go to the, I, well, actually, I got married uh, to someone in Dallas. And I did meet him in the club. And uh, I went to Dallas. And I decided that whatever I had to do to stay out of the business, I would do. And it was 35 years ago, and I'm still out of the business. <laughs> Whether or not the story about the bomb is strictly true, Alexandra left the business and became a hairdresser and cosmetologist in Dallas. She remains in contact with her good friend, fellow ex-burlesque queen, April March. By the 1990s, the burlesque world had long died, replaced by pole dancing clubs that were more explicitly aligned with sex work, but a renewed interest in the old art form generated a neo-burlesque revival. Spearheaded by women like Catherine Delish, Dita Von Tees, and Dirty Martini, this new generation drew on the glamour of old-school burlesque, but infused it with fresh costumes and, thanks to the loosening of obscenity laws, more risque performances. It would be years before news of the revival would reach Alexandra, who by this point had changed her name yet again, now to Jerry Weiss. April March told her about it, and together they eventually became involved in documentaries such as Behind the Burley Queue. They began appearing at burlesque events throughout the 2010s, including the Titans of Tees Legends Night at the Burlesque Hall of Fame in 2012. The Las Vegas Showgirl Museum filmed an extensive interview with both April and Alexandra in 2017 about their experiences working the burlesque circuit. During this time, she developed her own skincare line, the Jerry Weiss Facial Exchange, and ran a beauty business called Basic Beauty Concepts. Finally, in February 2019, news spread that Alexandra, now Geraldine Jerry Marie Weiss, died at age 79. She is remembered fondly by her husband of 24 years, Barry Moore, as well as by her many fans within the neo-burlesque movement. As I said at the start of the episode, her obituary also reveals that both of her parents are still alive today, in 2019, as is a sister who is not named. Alexandra's life is so interesting on so many levels. She managed to translate a career from female impersonator to burlesque icon without facing any backlash from fans, um, even well into her old age when she assumed the role as a grand dame of the burlesque revival. And honestly, goals. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded here in London, England. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. 
If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. You can also tweet at me at Morgan and Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. scary me looking straight into their eyes before they bury me making me ends we could be friends pockets inside out before you press it what you gotta say gotta say what you gotta do what you gotta say doesn't matter anymore what you gotta Something.